It is my honor to introduce Rear Admiral Barry C. Black, Chaplain of the United States Senate. He's the first African American to hold this office. For over 27 years, he served as a chaplain in the United States Navy, rising to the rank of Rear Admiral and ending his career as Chief of Chaplains of the United States Navy and Chief of the United States Navy Chaplain Corps. As a Rear Admiral, his personal decorations included the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, the Legion of Merit Medal, twice awarded the Defense Meritorious Service Medal and twice awarded the Meritorious Service Medal, and twice received the Navy Commendation Medal and the Marine Corps Commendation Medal. In 1995, Chaplain Black was chosen from 127 nominees for the NAACP Renowned Service Award for his contributions to equal opportunity and civil rights. On June 27, 2003, Chaplain Black was elected the 67, 62nd Chaplain of the United States Senate. He has an extensive educational background. He's an alumnus of Oakwood University up in Huntsville, Alabama. We're proud to claim that. In addition to earning three separate Masters of Arts degrees in Divinity, Counseling, and Management, he holds two earned doctorates, a doctorate in Ministry and a Ph.D. in Psychology. He is married to Brenda Black of St. Petersburg, Florida. They have three sons, Barry II, Brendan, and Bradford. One is a neurosurgeon, one is a neuroscientist, and the other works in China and speaks uh, fluent Mandarin, so an amazing uh, group of, of sons. In 2006, he authored a wonderful book I would encourage you to get called From the Hood to the Hill, A Story of Overcoming. It was my personal honor to host Chaplain Black twice when he spoke at Samford. His impact was significant. Just last Wednesday, I heard from my former student, Mark Smith, who heard Chaplain Black lecture in my preaching class. That discussion led Mark to go into military chaplaincy, and he is still uh, in that field. A few years later, when the Barnett family uh, visited Washington, D.C., he was the most gracious host for us, and we will never forget that. Uh, I, I just need to share one or two brief anecdotes. I remember when we were having lunch uh, with uh, Dr. Tom Quartz Marla, uh, former president of Samford, during a, uh, Chaplain Black's first visit to Samford, and he was spouting uh, Shakespeare just as he was Stephen when he was doing the sound check. He, can, he knows the Shakespeare. And uh, Tom kind of met him halfway there and started spouting some Shakespeare of his own. And then Tom shifted to, we well, think it was Cahill Gibran, and Tom started this, this poem and couldn't finish it, and Chaplain Black finished it for him. <laughs> I'll never forget that moment. I was like, this guy's crazy. Tom was quite taken with, uh, with it was Admiral Black uh, at the time. Uh, an amazing, amazing man. Uh, one compliment, Marla, I had to share. We were, he was complimenting Tom uh, before we came out here, and we talked about how marvelously articulate uh, Tom was and is, and, and he said, you know, he always spoke in unified paragraphs. That's a beautiful <laughs> description of Tom Quartz. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? If you knew Tom, everything he said was just so beautifully, beautifully stated. Most importantly, Chaplain Black is a minister of the gospel who proclaims the gospel of Christ and who exemplifies it through his amazing life. We are blessed that he is our proclaimer this morning for Freedom Sunday. Please join me in welcoming Chaplain Black to Brookwood Baptist Church.
This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. How old are you, Chaplain Black? A lady said to me some time ago. Madam, I responded, I am retired Navy. That information is classified. <laughs> Don't joke with me, Chaplain Black, she continued. How old are you? Well, I'll tell you this, she said, pulling out a pen and paper. Tell me something about yourself, and I can guess how old you are. So I told her I was a missionary to South America that I pastored 11 churches in North and South Carolina, that I was a Navy chaplain for 27 years. She's scribbling and carrying the nine and scratching this off, and that I have been in the U.S. Senate for 12 years. And with excitement in her eyes, she said so enthusiastically, I've got it, you're 89 years old. So I want to thank Jim for inviting this octogenarian <laughs> to celebrate in this beautiful sanctuary. And I love the baptismal uh, uh, stained glass there. It's so magnificent. What a joy it is to be here with you. I want to talk about experiencing the moral power of grace. Uh, the president uh, of the United States and his comments at the funeral service of uh, Reverend Pinckney talked about grace. And as we think about freedom, uh, we know that it was really grace that set us free. John 8.36 says, those whom the Son has set free are free indeed. In fact, Jesus said in the previous verse, verse 35, he says that if you are connected with sin and you can't get rid of sin, then you are a slave. You are in slavery. But those whom the Son has set free are free indeed. We saw that grace when uh, the bond hearing uh, of uh, Dylan Roof happened, and I was watching it on TV, and... The judge said, are the representatives of the family to speak? And the first words from the first representative who spoke startled me. For the words were, as you may recall, I forgive you. I don't think anyone expected that kind of response. And then, like a Mozart, a motif and a Mozart cantata or, or sonata, over and over again, that theme, I forgive you. One mother said, every fiber of my being aches with pain, but I forgive you. And I thought about the words of John Newton, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. I needed to hear the family representatives speak that way because I personally was wrestling with issues of theodicy, the, the goodness of God and the justice of God. Uh, my 
chief of staff, a little five-year-old precocious young fella, had asked his mother a question in the light of the Charleston tragedy that she was having difficulty answering. And so she said, let's go to the office and ask Dr. Black that question. You know, that's one of the challenges that you face, uh, parents bringing their children, because children ask the toughest question. So here he was, little Wyatt, blonde hair, piercing blue eyes. His mother brought him there and said, uh, Wyatt wants to ask you a question, Dr. Black. And Wyatt's question was, Chaplain Black, why doesn't God kill the devil? Even he had sensed the presence of the demonic in that prayer meeting. And he wanted to know what so many philosophers have, have tried to to, to explore. If God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, why doesn't he eviscerate evil in the world? In other words, where was the presence of the supernatural during this atrocity? And the response of the family <laughs> lets us know of the freedom that grace gives for the first words of our Lord from Calvary were, I forgive you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that declamation of grace made an impact on a dying thief, who according to Matthew chapter 27 had been cursing Jesus only moments before. But he heard the words of grace, the transformative words of forgiveness. And when his, his buddy uttered a, an amazing string of expletives, this thief, Luke 23, verse 40, said, Don't you fear God, seeing that we are in the same condemnation and this man has done nothing amiss? And then to our blessed Lord, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And I must confess, had I been Jesus, I would have let him wait a little while before I gave him an answer. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking. I'm, hold it. I, that just, just, I'll get back to you on that one. That's a, that, that's a, but no, our blessed Lord, immediately, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It is experiencing, praise God, the moral power of grace. Beloved, we should experience the moral power of grace because it helps us in our afflictions. Remember the Apostle Paul with that thorn in the flesh? With the exception of Jesus, the Apostle Paul was probably the greatest Christian who ever lived. He wrote most of the New Testament, but he had a thorn in the flesh. He called it a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And Paul said three times, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, three times I asked God to remove this thorn. Has anyone here ever prayed at least three times for a thorn that you were dealing with? Maybe 33 times. If you're married, maybe 333 times. Yeah, praise God. But the final word of, our, of, of, of his heavenly father, what, 
of Paul's heavenly thought, my grace is sufficient for you. For where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we find an amazing passage of scripture that we're using as the foundation of our uh, message today. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation, that's the freedom that we need, the freedom that the Son can give, has appeared to all people teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for And the older I get, the more I look for it. (laughs) When I had hair, I wasn't looking for it so much. But the older I get, you know, you start losing things as you keep living. You'll see what I'm talking about. Looking for, praise God, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that's the grace, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special. You are special. Special people zealous for good works. I want to unpack this pericope because it teaches us how to experience the moral power of grace. It is basically saying that grace trains us For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and that grace teaches us, it trains us. So the first thing that we learn, if we're going to experience the moral power of grace, we need to live with detachment from worldly desires. If you're taking notes, you may want to write that down. (laughs) Live with detachment from worldly desires. And it is interesting because when we talk about worldliness, we are not just talking about sin. One young fellow said, my mother told me not to smoke, I don't. Or listen to a dirty joke, I don't. She told me that I must not think about intoxicating drinks at pretty girls, I must not wink, I don't. Wild youth chase wine, women and song, I don't. To stay out late is very wrong, I don't. I kiss no girls, not even one. I do not even know how it is done. You wouldn't think I had much fun, I don't. So that's how we view worldliness. But worldliness is not just something that is a prohibition, the thou shalt not. Worldliness, says Chrysostom, the early Christian writer, is anything that you cannot take from this world to the next. If you cannot take it from time into eternity, you need to minor in it, not major in it. This is what our blessed Lord was saying in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, do not think about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat. These are the things that the Gentiles seek after. Now, there's nothing wrong with an Armani. This is, by the way, not an Armani. I buy my clothes at a European shop, J.C. Penney's. But anyway, uh, 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 um, he, he said, don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about what, what you're going to eat. 
uh, don't worry about, uh, you, you know, possessions. 1 John 2, 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. So we need to detach ourselves from the temporal. I think it's 2 Corinthians 4, 15 and onward. The things that are seen are temporary. If you can see it, it is ephemeral. Even the visage you saw in the mirror this morning, temporary. God knows as time goes by, you know it is temporary. Anything that you can't take from this world to the next, minor in it. Position. I guarantee you when I approach the pearly gates, Peter's not going to, Rear Admiral Black, come, you can't take that with you. Titles, positions, all of those kinds of things. Luke chapter 12, the rich fool. He, nowhere does the Bible say he did anything wrong. I got to build more barns. My harvest is great. It's going to be wonderful. But you're majoring in the wrong thing. Thou fool, Luke 12 says. This night your soul will be required of you. As a military chaplain, I've officiated at over 500 funerals. I have yet to see a hearse with a luggage rack. It just doesn't happen. And so detach yourself from the things of this world. Don't minor, don't major in them, minor in them. And then it says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The Greek is saying, live with, live with prudence, justice, and reverence. And this is critical, beloved. Live with prudence, justice, and reverence. That is what the moral power of grace is trying to lead us to. Live with prudence. Prudence is when you allow your passions and desires to have their proper place. Prudence is when you allow your passions and desires to have their proper place. Okay, and the two Bible verses that are critical to this, and you need to write them down. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 is the first Bible verse that is critical to this. And 1 Corinthians 6, 12 says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. It can be legal. But if it's not going to hasten my progress toward the kingdom of God, I probably need to let it go if I'm living with prudence. Then the text says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. If it is addictive, even if it's legal. Okay, One of my best friends was Juan Valdez. Coffee. And... Uh, you know, I was up to about eight cups a day. You know, had to jumpstart my day with it. Of course, you can't have dessert without coffee. You know, and on and on and on. And, you know, hey, it's legal. It's fine. But if it becomes an addiction, let it go. Another addiction I had was basketball. And I told my wife during the NBA finals these two months, when I go into the man cave, I am not to be disturbed except There is a declaration of war somewhere. You keep me there because I need to intercede for my team. My team will not win unless I'm engaged in palpable intercession. 
And anybody who knows about basketball, you know that the final two minutes can last three hours with all of the stuff, commercials and all of that kind of stuff. Addiction. I will not be brought under the power of any. So I had to, thank God for NBA TV, I could at least see the highlights, praise the Lord. And that'd take about 15 minutes instead of three hours. And then 1 Corinthians 8.13 is the other verse that you need to know. Therefore, if food makes my brother or sister stumble, I will never again eat meat. I'll become a vegan. <laughs> Lest I make my brother or sister stumble. Okay? So if it does not hasten my progress toward the kingdom of God, if it is addictive or if it causes a brother or sister to stumble. Okay? I was in downtown D.C. I wanted, a, I wanted a newspaper, but the only place I could get a quick newspaper was the liquor store, 62nd chaplain of the United States Senate. I made the decision I'm going to do without the newspaper today because Chaplain Black coming out of a liquor store with a newspaper under his arm I don't think that that may cause someone to stumble. Paul said, let not your good be evil spoken of. Now, he said, live with prudence, but live with justice. Justice is when you give God what he deserves and give humanity what, what it deserves. Paul put it this way in Acts chapter 24, verse 16. And it's a, it's a marvelous strategy for doing that. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and humanity. I don't want to, uh, to, to have my conscience, that godly positioning system inside of you. I don't want my conscience saying, you're not doing right by your brothers and sisters. And I don't want my conscience saying, I'm not doing right by God. Our blessed Lord said, Matthew 22, 20, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, give to God what belongs to God. And in Acts 5, 29, if there is a conflict, God gets the nod. So when the Supreme Court, but I'm not going there with that, if you're going to be free, you must recognize the religious liberty aspects of what the Supreme Court has voted on. And when... When there is a clash between the demands of Caesar and the demands of God, then God must get the nod. And as Forrest Gump said, that's all I'm going to say about that. All right. Praise the Lord. So justice involves that. Living with reverence is critical. One of the reasons why there is such a moral power to grace, beloved, is because it is... 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ that compels us, that controls us. We see this with Joseph. Joseph was very handsome. Okay, now I know handsomeness is subjective, but in Genesis chapter 39, the Holy Spirit-inspired Bible says, now Joseph was handsome and well-built. Now that's more information than I need, but the, the Holy Spirit was so excited about him, and Joseph was handsome and well-built. Portifer brought him home. Mrs. Portifer said when Joseph and her husband came into the house, is it hot in here or is it just me? That's what it says in the Hebrew. So, <laughs> got to know these biblical languages, Pastor. And so here she is hitting on Joseph every day. Now, it's one thing for somebody to bother you 
on a weekly basis or by every day she was on his case because he was, you know, he had it going on. Okay. Again, the Hebrew says that. Okay. Genesis 38, she got him cornered. He wouldn't even go in the house, the Bible said. Is she in there? Well, I'll come back later. But now she's got him cornered. And, and listen to the grace. Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, could have been killed, first thrown into a, a pit, st- bought by Potiphar, the chief executioner. And Joseph says to Mrs. Potiphar, the Bible says, but he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master doesn't know what is with me in the house and he has committed all that he has to my hands. Lady God has blessed me where I'm running the house. The only thing your husband is interested in is, you know, give me a menu for the meal so I can at least pick my meal, but I got you running everything. Praise God. There is no one greater in this house than I nor has he kept back anything from me. God has been good to me. But he, he, he only husband said, because you're his wife, duh. <laughs> and then comes the reason for the moral power and the freedom that he has. And he knows he's in trouble if he refuses her. Hell has no fury, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I know when to complete it and I know when to shut up. There you have it. All right. And, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That is how you live with prudence. Those three things, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 and 1 Corinthians 8, 13. How you live with justice, Acts 24, 16, a conscience void of offense toward God or humankind, and with reverence. When I think about how God has blessed me, when I think about what he did on Calvary to pay my sin debt in full, past, present, and I hate to shock you, and future, I am in no position to not extend that grace to others. In fact, he frees me. That was my Independence Day. Calvary was my Independence Day. He freed me from guilt, and it was said and in the prayer, Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul said in Romans seven eighteen, for I know that in me that is my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the good that I would do, I do not. And the evil that I would not do, I do. I am shackled, and our blessed Lord said, slavery. But then he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? The freedom comes in the grace shed by Jesus Christ on Calvary. Oh, bless his holy name. And then, I'm going to use a a big word here uh, as we go back to Titus. uh, Titus 2 says looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Live with eschatological expectancy. Okay. Or to put it more simply, live with an expectation of the second coming of Christ. We don't talk about the second coming like we used to. Colossians 3.2 says, set your affection on things above and not on the earth beneath. When is the last time you thought about heaven. 
How often during the day do you think about heaven? Now, I'm in the Senate. I have some multi-millionaire friends. You know, we do financial disclosure. And some of my running buddies are worth $300, $400 million. Now, what if Senator, I won't mention the name, but it's a name that's synonymous with wealth, said to me, you know, Barry, I know you like Manhattan. I, I know you like to play chess. You go there, and you go to Washington Square, and you play chess. I've decided to go and prepare a condo in Manhattan for you. And if I go and prepare a condo in Manhattan for you, I will come again and take you. Do you think an hour would go by without my thinking about my condo? The senator is preparing for me, and he knows what I like, and he's got enough to really fix it up. No, 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 no. Our blessed Lord said, let not your hearts be troubled, John 14, 1 to 3. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Do you think about that place? Do you live with eschatological expectancy? The members of the early church greeted one another with the word Maranatha. Even so come Lord Jesus. Are you more preoccupied with the things that you can't take from this world than with the things that you can take? I'm so glad that you can send it ahead. <laughs> Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then finally, it says here in this passage that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. The Greek is periousios. You are a special people. Live with the knowledge that you are special. Okay. Periusius refers to the fact that in ancient warfare to the victors went the spoils. And as the, the victorious army was taking various things, they would run across special items. Ah, oh, this is the crown of the vanquished monarch. This is the scepter of the vanquished monarch. And they knew you set these things apart for the king. These spoils belong to royalty. Well, there has been a great controversy between Christ and Satan. There was war in heaven, the book of Revelation says. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And that war is over. It is finished, our Lord made our declaration of independence from sin and shame on Calvary, and the enemy knows the war has already been won. Hallelujah. But the spoils are you and me, and we belong to Jesus. 1 Peter 2.9 says you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a distinctive people, special spoil. Live with the knowledge that you are one of God's special people that you should show forth 
the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the super manifestation of your grace even in our world that amid tragedy and challenges we still see your movement in our world. Thank you, God, that we can live with detachment from worldly desires, that we can live with prudence and justice and reverence, that we can live with eschatological expectancy, that we can live with the knowledge that we are special. Oh God, grant that each of us will experience the moral power of your amazing grace. And now while your heads are bowed, before I end the prayer, I wonder if there are those who are willing to make the commitment today. Brother Barry, I've heard the word of God, and I am willing to make the commitment to detach myself from anything that does not help me ethically, morally, and spiritually to detach myself from anything that becomes addictive and to detach myself from anything that will cause a brother or sister to stumble. If you're willing to make that commitment, I want to pray for you. Just lift your hand where you are. Those three things. I want to detach myself from anything that will not hasten my progress toward the kingdom is addictive or will cause a brother or sister to stumble. God bless you. God bless you. Just lift your hand. Heavenly Father, these uplifted hands indicate that these dear ones want to experience the moral power of your grace. I pray, O oh God, that you would seal their commitments with the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that when our Savior descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, we may be caught up to meet him in the air, for it is in his matchless name, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen.